Hi, this is Rachel Hine and Heather Levitis, Duke Plastic Surgery Residents. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for a yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. We're here today with our subject matter experts in facial rejuvenation, Dr. James Grotting, and Duke Plastic Surgery Division Chief, Dr. Jeffrey Marcus. Dr. Grotting is a nationally renowned cosmetic surgeon and past president of ASAPS and Southeastern Society of Plastic and Reconstructive Surgeons, as well as author of multiple books and paper publications and lectures across the world. Thank you both for being here with us today. Today, we will begin by discussing the aging face, anatomy of the face, followed by different facelift and facial rejuvenation techniques. Finally, we will end with different complications and technical pearls. Let's get started. Let's first discuss changes that occur in the aging face. There are two processes, intrinsic and extrinsic. Intrinsically, the epidermis becomes thinner as there is a flattening of the dermal-epidermal junction. Cell turnover decreases, the skin contains less fibroblasts, the number of subdermal adipose cells decreases, and both the number and diameter of collagen fibers decreases. Along these lines, Rachel, what happens to the ratio of type 3 to type 1 collagen? The ratio of type 3 to type 1 collagen increases because the relative amount of type 3 collagen decreases. This was tested in a previous examination. Let's go through some of the commonly tested skin disorders that can increase that can increase the timing and onset of wrinkles. Cutis laxica is a genetic disorder with variable penetrance and lax skin that is associated with poor elastic tissues secondary to de degeneration of elastic fibers. Patients will present with coarse, loose skin throughout their body. Elastoderma is a condition of unknown etiology. Clinical manifestations include pendulous skin laxity involving trunk and extremity that progresses to the entire body. In this case, operative intervention is not without significant risk, as with the rest of the conditions mentioned next. Ehlers-Danlos is a genetic disorder affecting collagen and connective tissue and presents as joint hyperextensibility and hypermobility, thinness of skin, poor wound healing, and aortic aneurysms. Again, do not operate in these patients if possible. Werner syndrome is an autosomal recessive disorder presenting with pigmented skin and indurated plaques, osteoporosis, muscle atrophy, small vessel angiopathy, and poor wound healing. Finally, progeria, also known as Hutchinson-Gilford syndrome, is an autosomal recessive disorder in which patients suffer from premature aging, lax skin, growth retardation, cardiac abnormalities, and poor wound healing. Of all these, Heather, which I've already mentioned, which of these tested skin disorders can still undergo cosmetic surgery? Cutis laxa. These patients may still undergo cosmetic surgery, and this concept is frequently tested on our in-service examination. Different types of rhydids include animation wrinkles, fine shallow wrinkles from disruption of skin elasticity, and coarse deep wrinkles from solar elastosis and epidermal atrophy. This correlates with the extrinsic process of aging. Rachel, do you remember what happens on a pathological scale to the skin as we age? Yes, pathologically, a loss of dermoepidermal papillae is seen, as well as fewer melanocytes and Langerhans cells. Less dermal collagen leads to thinner skin, and there's a loss of a reticular dermis with reduced dermal organization, and this decreases in ground substance, elastic fibers, collagen, and glycosaminoglycan. This is important and frequently tested. Dr. Grotting, can you talk to us a little bit about the clinical changes in the aging face? Sure, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. 
And, you know, what happens in the aging face, of course, varies a little bit with genetics as well as the uh, decade in which the patient is seeking consultation. But in general, you know, we see the effects of gravity. We see uh, descent of compartments of the face, as well as deflation and volume loss, and particularly from the upper and middle thirds of the face. And so we see, uh, as the malar fat pad descends, the effacement of the area along the lid cheek junction and the formation of the tear troughs. That's probably one of the first things that primarily women see in their late 30s, early 40s, and seek uh, treatment for. And then, of course, as time goes by, especially as patient gain, patients gain weight, we see fat accumulation in the lower part of the face, especially in the jowl and neck. Uh, not always, but uh, there are, are large numbers of patients who have fat accumulation there that needs to be ex, uh, uh, addressed. And, and then finally, what's become known as radial expansion, and basically you can think about this uh, as the retaining ligaments stretching and the tissues move away from the face, and that's what uh, deepens the folds. And then uh, a number of studies have shown what happens to the bone. For example, around the uh, orbit, we see a deepening of the orbit, a widening of the orbit. Uh, the maxilla retreats with time, and all of these things, including uh, loss of volume in the teeth and gums, all these things lead to uh, uh, aging changes, which patients seek consultation for. All right, let's move on to anatomy of the face. The face can be divided into anatomical layers. The layers of the face from superficial to deep are skin, subcutaneous tissue and superficial fat compartments, the smas, temporoparietal fascial above, skin and platysma below, facial muscles, deep facial fascia, neurovascular structures, and bone. Importantly, the neurovascular plane contains the facial nerve, parotid duct, buccal fat pad, and facial vessels. The SMAS, as I mentioned, or superficial musculoapro-neurotic system, is the superficial fascia of the face and lies under skin and the subcutaneous tissue. The SMAS is thickest over the parotid gland and becomes attenuated more medially. Rachel, do you remember what the SMAS is continuous with throughout its course? The SMAS is continuous with the cervical fascia of the neck, the temporoparietal fascia, the galea, and the frontalis muscle. That's correct. All right, let's review the layers of fascia of the temporal region. Superficial to deep, we have the superficial temporal fascia, the facial nerve, the superficial layer of the deep temporal fascia, the superficial temporal fat pad, and the deep layer of the deep temporal fascia. Heather, do you remember what plane you would want to dissect for an open reduction of a zygomatic arch, fra arch fracture? Directly beneath the superficial, superficial layer of the deep temporal fascia. There's a good... Uh, a good technical pearl to consider here is just again you I know um, you mentioned uh, the the SMAS and its continuity with the the galea um, referring to the scalp frontalis and along the forehead um, the temporoparietal fascia those are all basically the same layer but they coalesce and everything kind of fuses on the on the zygomatic arch and that's kind of what confuses people because it, it uh, at that point coming from above the temporoparietal fascia uh, is fused and then below that it's considered the SMAS. 
Uh, and I think that's kind of one of the points that sometimes uh, can be confusing. And that's why that area is mo most prone to injury because the nerve itself um, right over the arch um, uh, is actually um, uh, in closer proximity to, to this coalescence of, of fascias. And so when you talk about the layers in the temporal region and you mentioned that you go through, of course you go through the skin first and the subcutaneous tissue and then you have the temporal parietal fascia, the facial nerve is going to be uh, beneath that. Um, and that's specifically, it's the frontal or temporal branch of the, of the facial nerve. So if you lift up that um, temporal parietal fascia, um, uh, the nerve is going to actually come up with it. It's going to be fused within that plane, and so everything deep to that is safe. That's why people say if you go through the next layer down, which is the superficial layer of the deep temporal fascia, then that for sure is safe because you're definitely below it at that point. Does that, does that make sense? Thank you, Dr. Marcus. Another set of anatomical elements of the face to recall are the components of the deep facial fascia which is the continuation of the superficial layer of the deep cervical fascia. It is also comprised of the investing fascia of the parotid, the masseteric fascia, and the deep temporal fascia. The deep facial fascia covers the facial nerve branches, buccal fat pad, parotid duct, facial artery, and vein. The facial nerve pierces deep facial fascia on the interior edge of the masseter to innervate mimetic muscles. Heather, let's use an old exam question to review. The SMAS system invests the platysmal muscles and fuses to the external surface of which of the following? The cervical investing fascia, the galea, the parotid masseteric fascia, the superficial temporal fascia, or the temporal parietal fascia. The SMAS is fused to the external surface of the parotid masseteric fascia. So this is a good, um, a good place to, uh, to comment as well. Um, the nerve runs basically right along that, uh, right along the surface of the peritonomasseteric fascia, and, and there, it, the the SMAS is, you know, there's some, there's some, I wouldn't say fusion, but it's kind of a, a looser, sort of a realer, almost a realer plane there. So, um, at the right levels, it's actually fairly easy to get into. It's, I think, it's, I find it most easy to get into in the temporal region, and then in the lower region where you can get, you know, just uh, in the in the area around the marginal mandibular nerve, and it's a little bit harder. It's a little less obvious in between. So a lot of times, at least for me. If I'm going to be doing a dissection, like for, you know, say it's a reanimation or if I'm doing a facial nerve dissection or, you know, a facelift in that plane, I'll either stop, start above or, uh, or below or both and then, work in, and then work in between from the area that I already have defined. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, uh, Dr. Marcus. And uh, I think that a couple of things uh, from a clinical standpoint that become important, and one is talking about injuries to the temporal or frontal branch of the facial nerve, a lot of those are uh, a result of simply traction injuries, especially when we're trying to do brow lifting through relatively small incisions and lifting up with some uh, vigor in order to be able to see what we want to try to release along the supraorbital rim. And I think uh, uh, one has to be careful about how much, uh, how much traction one places in that area. Fortunately, most of those injuries recover in a fairly short period of time. And then, uh, you know, of course, the marginal mandibular branch, uh, lots of anatomic studies showing where that runs. And in general, none of them have shown that it goes uh, below approximately four centimeters below the, uh, below the mandibular border, and then becomes most superficial where 
the frontal, or I'm sorry, the facial artery is palpable, right, as it crosses the mandibular border. So those are areas where one needs to be awfully cautious because, uh, you know, that, that injury, unless it's a traction, you know, if that uh, nerve is cut, that's a permanent uh, problem. And can you talk to us a little bit about the fixed and the mobile SMAS? There's a lot of interest now in how do you obtain a durable lifting of the jowl area and the neck, and what all do you have to do? Of course, you know, there are many, many good operations for facelifting, including the high SMAS, the extended SMAS, uh, and various types of plication procedures and so on. Uh, the key to lifting is to make sure that uh, as you elevate the SMAS, you're using that as a handle to uh, reposition the skin. And so you need to leave the skin attached to the mobile part of the SMAS. Now, for plication procedures, one can, uh, I think, uh, gain better advantage by working more anteriorly in the face. What do I mean by that? As you proceed past the fixed mass, which is over the parotid area, and the next time you're in there, you can move that tissue, and you can see how the dense mass over the parotid really doesn't pull very much. And that's the reason that that mass layer is in the extended mass procedure, for example, that has to be dissected in order to use that as a handle. In plication procedures, if one moves then to that junction between the fixed mass and the mobile mass anteriorly and plicates uh, directly in that region, you're closer to the tissues that you want elevated. But it still means that you need to leave the uh, skin attached to the mass so that you, you, uh, you get the effect that you want. Another important set of anatomical structures to review are the facial fat compartments. First, the superficial fat compartments are those that are superficial to this mass. Rachel, do you know which fat compartments are the superficial ones? The superficial fat compartments contain the nasolabial fat compartment, cheek fat compartments, which are the medial, middle, and lateral fat compartments, the temporal and forehead fat compartments, and the superior, inferior, and lateral orbital fat. That's right. The nasolabial fat compartment is consistent in volume regardless of age and is located anterior to medial cheek fat. Cheek fat compartments include the medial cheek fat, middle cheek fat, lateral temporal cheek compartments. Rachel, can you discuss the cause of a deepening nasolabial fold? Sure. The malar fat pad or cheek fat compartment is a superficial fat compartment over the cheek that is thought to give a youthful appearance to the face. Its primary components are nasolabial and medial cheek fat compartments and inferior orbital fat pad. As the malar fat pad descends with age, it also loses volume, which causes fullness and deepening of the nasolabial folds. That's right. The other superficial fat compartments include the forehead and temporal fat compartments. The orbital fat compartments are the superior compartment, inferior compartment, and lateral compartment. Jowl fat occurs at the region of the mandibular retaining ligament and is adherent to the depressor anguli oris. Now let's review the deep facial fat compartments. Heather, can you remember those? The deep compartments include the deep medial fat compartments, the SUF and the ROOF, or suborbicularis and retroorbicularis oculi fat compartments. Loss of volume in these compartments can be a source of aging in the midface. 
Pseudotosis results from sub subsequent dissension of the superficial fat compartments over these deep facial fat compartments. The buccal fat pad is another important structure that contributes to facial and cheek contour. It has a central body and three extensions, temporal, pterygoid, and buccal. The zygomatic and buccal branches of the facial nerve lie superficial to the buccal extension, and the product duct passes through it. Clinically, a buccal extension may be removed through an intraoral incision to reduce cheek fullness. That's an interesting point, and I think that it's a, a, an area of facial rejuvenation that is often overlooked, um, and it can be overdone as well, but there are certain patients who, after they've undergone facelifting, still have a fullness that appears right uh, lateral to the oral commissure, and you can make a diagnosis of buccal fat protruding in that area by simply pushing on it or having the patient forcefully suck in with their mouth and that pulls the buccal fat in. Then as they relax, you can watch that buccal fat move right into that area of weakened fascia overlying it because the, the fascia overlying the buccal fat pad is extremely thin. And if it's, uh, if it's torn during facial rejuvenation, uh, you will get herniation of the buccal fat. And if you get that, the best thing, if you can't repair that fascia, is to simply reduce that directly through the facelift incision. Or secondarily, I find it quite easy to uh, reduce it by an intraoral uh, incision. And as you said, the big challenge there, or the big risk, is the buccal branch of the facial nerve, uh, which runs right directly through it. I think that you can, uh, you can, you can be presented with this in one of three ways uh, in the context of a rejuvenation case. One would be in a patient where you've done a, one version of a deep plane facelift, so your sub-SMAS, in which case you're looking at the nerves as they're crossing right over this fat, which makes it very easy to see the fat, and actually makes it fairly easy to remove the fat because you can see the structures that you're trying to avoid. If you were doing a subcutaneous lift and then doing some version of plication, you don't actually see the nerves as well because you're not in that plane. So there's some degree of potentially greater risk to, re to work on fat when you don't actually see the things that you're trying to avoid. Um, not that it can't be done, it can, but you might be better off in that circumstance in doing an intraoral approach um, where you can make an incision and the fat is immediately uh, appreciable. The, d the difference here is that as you're retracting or drawing the fat out, pulling on it, you're, you're potentially pulling that nerve with it, so it kind of bows out of your incision, so you have to be really careful. Um, and doing that type of a dissection like very, uh, in very small increments, potentially using the bipolar uh, to be able to um, buzz any of the numerous vessels that run through it, and doing it little by little by little by little um, is probably wise. Let's move on to ligaments of the face. Retaining ligaments are those anchored to the deep structures of the face, such as bone or muscular fascia, and connect to the overlying soft tissue. They are the fascial boundaries of some fat compartments. Rachel, what is the deformity caused by the orbital malar ligament and malar membrane? The tear trough deformity in malar bags result from presence of the orbital malar ligament in the aged face. That's right. Ligaments and adhesions of middle and lower face include both osteocutaneous ligaments and parado-masseteric cutaneous ligaments. The osteocutaneous ligaments are the mandibular osteocutaneous ligament, which extends from the paracyphiseal region to the overlying dermis, 
and the zygomatic osteocutaneous ligament, which extends from the zygomatic arch through malar fat pad to the dermis. Rachel, what is another name for this anatomical structure? This is called McGregor's patch. Additionally, the parotid and masseteric cutaneous ligaments are formed by the coalescence of the superficial and deep facial fascia, also known as Lori's fascia. You know, I think this is a very interesting part of uh, anatomy, and it's one that is probably argued about in more facial rejuvenation panels than almost any other uh, point, and that is, are the retaining ligaments of the face important to release in order to get proper lifting? And one has to keep in mind that these, uh, these are multiple, and they start really at the bone, and they move up through the layers of the face into the skin. So one can divide them at various levels whether it be subcutaneous, whether it be submass or subperiosteal. Uh, so there are many ways in which they can be released. Whether or not it is absolutely mandatory to find them and release them is the subject of controversy. My own opinion is that they can be repositioned like any other structure in the face. They probably relax and stretch with time but they don't bind the tissues in uh, an inferior location anatomically, so they can be moved back up without actually cutting them. But again, you'll find many other uh, surgeons who believe passionately that they have to be released in order to get a proper rejuvenation. I find them to be more of a factor in just in getting exposures. So if the type of an approach that that I'm doing requires a greater exposure than, you know, releasing those ligaments becomes mandatory just to be able to accomplish that goal. But if that isn't what you're trying to do to begin with, it may not even be, it may not be necessary. You also mentioned the orbitomalar ligament, which I think is an important uh, anatomic structure, particularly in patients with deep tear trough deformities. And there are a number of ways of addressing that by either filling that with autologous fat grafting or alternatively working through the lower lid either through a transconjunctival approach or an open approach, but to release that membrane so that you can either move tissue, move fat from the lower lid into that region or you can release uh, the um, orbicularis muscle so that everything moves up to shorten the lower lid, which is kind of the goal of lower lid surgery to give a less hollow orbit and to fill that area. Thank you, Dr. Grotting. Continuing our discussion of relevant facial anatomy, we'll talk next about the muscles of the face and move on to blood supply and finally talk about innervation. There are four layers of facial muscles. The first three layers of the muscles are innervated by the facial nerve on their deep surface. Heather, do you know the muscles that are innervated on their super superficial surface by the facial nerve? That would be the mentalis, levator anguli oris, and buccinators. That's right. So the four layers, um, the first three include the depressor anguli oris, zygomatic, zygomaticus minor, and orbicularis. The second layer is the depressor labii inferioris, rhizorus, and platysma. The third is the zygomaticus major, levator labii superioris, aliquae nasii. 
And the fourth layer is innervated by the facial nerve on the superficial muscular surface, the mentalis, the levator anguli oris, and the buccinator. I might add that uh, a lot of uh, people remember the muscles that are innervated uh, on their superficial surface by the facial nerve uh, as Major League Baseball, MLB, mentalis, levator, and buccinator. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> love it. All right. The blood supply to the face is mostly supplied by the external carotid arteries with small contributions to the eyelid and brow from the ophthalmic division of the internal carotid artery. As mentioned, the facial vessels lie in a plane along with the parotid duct, buccal, and zygomatic branches of the facial nerve. Rachel, do you know the course of the facial vessels at the level of the mandible? At the level of the mandible, the facial vessels cross three centimeters medial and course over the masseter. The vein lies posterior to the artery. Remember, the nerve runs over the facial vessels. Anterior facial arteries include the facial, superior, and inferior labial, supratrochlear, and supraorbital, which lie directly under this mass layer. The anterior region of the face is supplied by myocutaneous perforators. The lateral face is supplied by fasciocutaneous perforators. To round out our anatomy review, the sensory innervation to the face is via cranial nerve 5, the trigeminal nerve. Generally, nerves disrupted at the skin should regenerate. Heather, what is the most commonly injured nerve during a facelift, and where does that injury most commonly occur? The gray auricular nerve is the most commonly injured nerve during a facelift, and McKinney's point is where the nerve is at its greatest risk of injury. McKinney's point is 6.5 centimeters below the tragus, where it lies superficial along the posterior border of SCM. Do you guys know who Peter McKinney is? No. Peter McKinney uh, was a plastic surgeon in Chicago, and he was... Uh, past president of ASAPS and one of the founding members of the Rhinoplasty Society. And a great guy. And a good guy. That's right. Oh, remember, it's the great auricular <laughs> nerve, <laughs> not the greater auricular nerve, because there's no lesser auricular nerve. All right. We said it correctly once. No, we said it correctly. You said it, you said it correctly. Yeah. I just wanted to emphasize. Usually, you know, usually um, when there's an injury to the nerve, it's usually as, as you're dissecting from posterior. So you're, you're coming down behind the ear to get down, you know, into the neck and you're trying to make that transition around the, around the earlobe. And that's kind of where you start encountering. If you stay on top of like over the surface of the sternocleidomastoid um, and not getting into the substance of the muscle, then um, you can avoid it. It's usually getting lost in that transition zone from, you know, sort of posterior to anterior. Yeah, I think that's really an important point. Uh, when you're doing a closed dissection of the skin behind the ear with your facelift scissors, uh, oftentimes that dermis is, is, is adhered very tightly to the mastoid fascia and then down onto the sternocleidomastoid fascia. So it's very easy to get under the sternocleidomastoid fascia and you're looking at the external jugular vein and the uh, great auricular nerve there. So it's very easy to injure it. Now, if you do injure it, uh, most everybody is able to do a nerve repair. And I think it's best to get out your loops and your 9 nylon and put the nerve back together again and then try to cover it with some, uh, some soft tissue. I think it's best uh, if you damage it so badly that uh, it can't be repaired, then perhaps it should be buried within the substance of the sternocleidomastoid muscle Quite honestly, uh, many head and neck surgeons, when they're doing parotidectomies and so on, will sacrifice the nerve with very little morbidity associated with it. But 
keep in mind that we're talking about aesthetic surgery here. So we'd like and a lot and a lot of times you'll have um, it won't you if an injury occurs there it may have already branched too. So um, it's it's at some point it does branch and um, I, I've been in that situation where I've had to repair one, um, but the patient had sensation immediately after surgery. So obviously that wasn't from my repair. Um, it was probably after a branch point. And the greater auricular nerve provides sensation to the lower half of the ear. Um, so it is a sensory nerve. Um, it lies it typically lies deep to the superficial cervical fascia. However, platysma is absent here, which places the nerve at risk. Uh, moving forward with other sensory nerves, the auriculotemporal nerve courses with the superficial temporal artery. Clinically, the auriculotemporal nerve is significant in that it can lead to Fry syndrome. Heather, what is this? Fry syndrome is the sympathetic reinnervation of facial skin of the facial skin flap after inadvertent division causing gustatory sweating. Great. The lesser occipital nerve travels over the SCM, runs between muscle fascia and superficial fascial, and runs posterior to the great auricular nerve. Do you know what this nerve innervates? The lesser occipital nerve innervates the superior third of the ear. Great. The remaining sensory nerves to in this discussion are the uh, first branch of the trigeminal nerve, the supraorbital and supertrochlear, which supply sensation to the forehead and scalp, the second branch of the trigeminal nerve, which it provides, which is the zygomatical temporal and zygomatical facial, which supplies sensation over the lateral orbit, and the infraorbital nerve. The motor innervation to the face is supplied by the facial nerve and its branches. The facial nerve emerges from the stylomastoid foramen and is then protected by the parotid gland and its capsule divides into upper and lower portions. First, the frontal branch, which is at risk of permanent injury during facelift because of lack of ar arborization. It courses superficially above the arch at the midpoint between the tragus and the lateral canthus. Remember, branches travel below this mass or below the temporal parietal fascia. Rachel, what is the anatomical landmark used commonly to find the course of the frontal branch of the facial nerve? That would be Patangi's line. The frontal branch travels from 0.5 centimeters below the tragus to the 0.1.5 centimeters above the lateral brow. Additionally, it is found 5 millimeters lateral to the frontozygomatic suture. The zygomatic branch and the buccal branches emerge from the anterior parotid and course in the loose areolar tissue and fat superficial to the masseter. Moving inferiorly, we have the marginal mandibular and cervical branches of the facial nerve. The marginal mandibular nerve is protected by the deep cervical fascia after exiting at the inferior, anterior inferior border of the parotid at the angle of the mandible. Like the frontal branch, it is at more uh, risk of permanent injury during the facelift because of lack of arborization. Heather, do you remember if this passes over or under the facial vessels along its course? Like water under the bridge, it courses above the facial vessels. That's correct. Remember, posterior to the facial vessels, 81% of patients uh, the nerve runs above the mandibular border. In 19% of patients, this may course as deep as one centimeter below the mandibular border. At this point, it runs deep to the platysma between the deep cervical fascia and the platysma. One thing to uh, think about in terms of the of potential for facial nerve injury, sometimes we talk about its position uh, as it courses out medially along the face and how far out um, one can go before it causes a, um, uh, an injury that's um, uh, that's visible. Um, the lateral canthus is sort of the, the limiter, is that injuries that are proximal to the lateral canthus typically, typically are going to result in a, uh, a paresis. 
and those that are uh, distal to the uh, lateral canthus usually don't. And it's usually because of the arborization. So in that, you're talking about mostly like buccal and zygomatic, or I, I just refer to them as buccozygomatic branches because they're all kind of, the, you know, coalesced at that point. Um, but it doesn't necessarily apply to the frontal or the, or the marge, as you've mentioned, because of the lack of arborization. Last, the cervical branch is located about half the distance from the mentum to the mastoid and approximately one centimeter below this line at the level of the angle of the mandible. It exits the inferior portion of the parotid, perforates the deep cervical fascia, and runs in the fibroareolar tissue that attaches platysma to the superior lateral border. Rachel, how can you distinguish between a cervical nerve injury and a marginal mandibular nerve injury? So injury to the cervical nerve or cervical branch of the facial nerve results in an asymmetrical smile, just like the marginal mandibular nerve. However, the patient is still able to evert and purse the lower lip. So unlike the marginal mandibular nerve, where paralysis of the nerve results in inability to evert or purse the lips. That's tested. So sometimes you can get uh, some asymmetry, initial asymmetry in, uh, the, in the smile. Uh, with simple division of the platysma without damage to the, the nerve itself until the patient uh, accommodates, and uh, that can be distressing to the patient. If you do have an injury to the marginal mandibular branch, uh, usually there will be almost an exaggerated response of the opposite marginal mandibular, so you get more of an asymmetry in many of those cases than you might have otherwise. And so I find that the best treatment is to go ahead very early on and put a little Botox in the opposite uh, DAO um, in order to weaken the uh, hyperplastic or the, you know, the exaggerated response of those muscles. And then just keep, uh, uh, you know, counseling the patient that things almost always come back. Uh, it can last uh, a week. It can last a month. I've seen it last uh, six months or more. So you really have to see those patients often. And uh, generally they're accepting of it as long as it's not uh, too asymmetric. And Botox has been a big help for those patients. The last nerve that needs mentioning is the spinal accessory nerve. Injury would result in weakness of shoulder and inability to lift the shoulder girdle and usually results from dissection of the lateral neck. Heather, can you discuss the course of this nerve? It exits the jugular foramen, innervates the STM, leaves the posterior border of STM 7 to 9 centimeters from the clavicle, passes posterior to innervate the trapezius. The spinal accessory nerve is vulnerable to injury as it leaves the STM. Next, we will discuss preoperative facial analysis. Dr. Grotting, do you mind talking to us a little bit about your preoperative assessment in the aging face? Remember, team, the face should be analyzed in equal horizontal thirds and vertical fifths. And I like to do exactly that. That's what I start with, is looking at the thirds of the face, the uh, height of the brow, the mid, middle third and the lower third, and we'd like to uh, just analyze whether or not any of that can be altered safely with facial rejuvenation surgery. Sometimes, you know, the bone structure of the face is such that you, you can't alter that. But I think it's important to document uh, what the thirds are like, as well as the uh, vertical fifths as, uh, of the face. And especially if I'm doing a rhinoplasty, I'm going to look and see, you know, the, the 
Scalar flaring uh, in the in the uh, central fifth. I'm going to look and see the position of the lateral canthus to the medial canthus. I'm going to look and see you know whether or not the uh, patient would benefit by increasing the bizygomatic diameter. And usually the easiest way to do that to give a little bit more fullness through the cheek area is with with fat grafting. In terms of brow, I'm looking really at the shape of the brow. I don't care quite so much whether it's high or low, but it should be lower medially than it is laterally. And so as long as the brow shape is correct, uh, one may uh, find that lifting is not necessarily important. One can reshape the brow uh, either by fat grafting below it to support it or in certain cases, and I'm thinking about the older patient with a descending lateral brow that a, a direct brow lift in those patients does well because it heals, uh, heals quite, quite well. So uh, I'm looking to see how much descent of tissues there are and how much involution there is. So just like we talked about earlier, uh, my plan is going to be to try to reposition tissues that have fallen due to gravity, but also to expand tissues that have sunken in due to uh, loss of volume. And so it's going to be a combination of uh, direct repositioning of skin and SMAS, and it's going to be uh, a filling usually with autologous fat. With regard to the fat compartments, I think anatomically it's quite interesting that the face is arranged the way it is, but from a practical standpoint, what we're trying to do is really blend the compartments together so that the surface of the face looks younger and smoother. So I'm looking for those areas, the nasolabial fold, the marionette lines, uh, whether or not the chin is tonic, the um, tear trough, the temporal area. I'm looking at all those regions where I can use fat to blend and use fat to re-volumize without doing open surgery. And I heard you discussing a little bit earlier how when you look at a face, you kind of think what makes this person look older. Can you talk a little bit more about that? That's really important, I think, first to find out from the patient what she's seeing or he's seeing when they look in the mirror. What is it that bothers them? Of course, we always have to start with that. And uh, it's uh, it's really a, sort of a delicate conversation. You don't want to seem critical of a patient or suggest too much and get into things that absolutely don't bother them. But on the other hand, it's an opportunity to educate the patient about what can be done safely. And what I'm looking for is what does, what is it that makes that patient look older than they want to look? We talked about fat becoming deposited along the jawline and into the neck. And very often, that's what the patients complain about and makes them seek uh, a neck lift. Patients oftentimes don't realize that they are, quote, negative vector, that they have a flattened malar area. But it can make a huge difference to revolumize that region, and it's critical to do that 
if you're thinking about doing lower lid blepharoplasty to combine those two together, uh, very frequently lower lid blepharoplasty is a failure unless you can support the cheek with either fat grafting or with a mid-face lift. So I wait and see what the patient tells me that they're interested in doing, but with the use of computer imaging, it's an opportunity to really show a patient what is, what is possible, and it's critical that you don't make them look different, you just make them look younger. And uh, I encourage patients to bring in pictures of themselves, uh, say for example, in their 30s, because a couple of things, I want to look at what was their brow shape uh, when they were younger. And there are a number of patients who never had an arched brow. And so to create that in a patient that never had it sometimes is an error. So I think it's important to, uh, you know, to make sure that we're not creating faces that draw attention from friends and family as looking too different. There are three different incision placements, temporal, preauricular, and postauricular. Dr. Grotting, would you mind discussing the use of each of these incisions uh, in your practice as well as uh, indications and technique? Sure. I have pretty much uh, moved away from the extended temporal incision, and the reason for that is because in too many cases, one increases the distance between the lateral canthus and the temporal hairline. And when you move it back too much, uh, you can uh, really give the appearance of the patient actually losing hair or getting older. So I like to leave the hairline where it is. And most of the time, I will uh, make an incision at the base of the sideburn. And I try not to extend it up in front of the sideburn because sometimes in some patients, that's a visible scar and a dead giveaway that the patient has had, quote, work done. Um, with regard to the tragus, it really depends on whether or not there is a transition in skin color as move, one moves from the cheek onto the tragus. If there is a definite uh, difference between pink skin of the cheek and white skin over the tragus, then usually I will make the incision pre-tragal. In patients that have uniform skin color, uh, I will go not necessarily retrotragal, but at the edge of the tragus. I think men generally will do better uh, with a pretragal incision in order to avoid dragging hair up over the tragus, although that can be dealt with with uh, uh, laser hair removal. You know, in terms of whether or not one needs to extend the incision into the postauricular area, really depends on how much extra skin there is in the neck. And for me, I think once you've got uh, patients with lax skin below the thyroid cartilage, I'm thinking more in terms of a post-auricular incision extended into the hairline posteriorly. In patients that really don't have that much extra loose skin in the neck or above the or uh, below the thyroid cartilage, I do the. Uh, simulation test where I sit in front of them and I simply elevate the skin along the jawline and I see if there's bunching of skin at the earlobe and if there is 
then I've got to do something with that. I can either tailor it, chase the dog ear up into the postericular sulcus, or do a more traditional um, skin incision in the postericular area. If it doesn't look like there's much bunching there, then oftentimes we can deal with that, uh, stopping the incision right at the earlobe, and then chasing the dog ear superiorly as long as you don't have to chase it in front of the uh, uh, sideburn. So if it looks like I'm going to have bunching there, I usually will deal with that by making a short uh, temporal incision superiorly disconnected from my initial uh, incision in order to elevate uh, the subcutaneous tissue superiorly, or sometimes we'll go subgaleal. Can you talk a little bit about a uh, high retroauricular incision versus a lower re retroauricular incision? Because um, we had a question about that last year. It was based more on skin redundancy, the amount of skin redundancy on the neck, and how you place a um, post-auricular incision, whether it was high or low. So I think it's important to try to hide that incision, hide that final scar. And I can't really imagine a situation where I would accept a low uh, retroauricular, postauricular uh, incision because that is almost always going to be visible there. And in my mind, there's no reason why you can't carry that up. And I always go up above where visually the helix of the ear crosses the hairline. So from front view, there's a point at which you lose sight of the postericular skin. And if the incision is above that, even when patients wear their hair up, generally that incision is hidden. So I think we should do uh, everything we can to keep those incisions concealed. And I don't think you can get necessarily more skin out with a low postericular incision. Uh, I think there are many ways of tailoring those dog ears into the into the hair uh, and keeping keeping it high. Um, the only thing I would add, I mean, that was uh, Dr. Grotting's description is was terrific. Um, only thing to mention, just in terms of elevation, with regardless of you know how uh, um, how the incision is designed, particularly anteriorly, we haven't really talked all that much about elevation uh, of the of the plane, at least to begin. Um, and anteriorly is where most, I think, residents probably stress out uh, about that posterior, you know, in the postericular area that can stay, you can stay on top of the mastoid fascia and you look at that transition fatty tissue up, mastoid white tissue down, and it's fairly easy as you get over the sternocleidomastoid, you look for the muscle fascia, don't violate that and you'll be safe there. But anteriorly, I think it's helpful to remember that, um, you know, the branches of the, uh, of the facial nerve really don't exit right away. And so you see a lot of the, you know, the masters using, um, you know, a, a scalpel, 15, 20 blade, you know, particularly initially. Um, you can maintain an even thickness, whatever, whichever of these incisions you use, you can maintain an even thickness of the skin flap um, safely uh, with a blade uh, until you know, you're not really getting too, too um, conscientious about that until, you, until you've gotten just a little ways along on the parotid. And then as you get better, then you could continue even doing that beyond. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and I try to leave, uh, uh, you know, as much fat on the skin flap as I can, um, so that it's so that it's even. And I'm looking for fat above, and the 
color of this mass is different. It's a fascial, it's more of a pink colored down in that, uh, in that region. And I'm using my non-dominant hand as I'm retracting for myself and I'm feeling exactly what is the position of the blade as I'm elevating that skin flap and moving carefully in that way. I mean, you couldn't even use a needlepoint cautery set on a very low setting, but the key is you always know exactly how thick that flap is. Don't be in a hurry in that area. And if you're using, I know we have a lot more to get to, but and and if you're using a, a tumescent or pseudo tumescent type of a technique for hemostasis during the procedure, just remember that you have to meticulously cauterize every tiny, even even um, remotely uh, bleeding uh, vessel, because once that epi wears off, you'll start seeing some more. Thank you. Now we will move on to surgical techniques and vectors. Remember, the SMAS should be fixed in a more vertical or diagonal vertical direction. Skin may be uh, more posterior and vertical. And the SMAS fixation or plication provides the longevity of the result. Tension should be placed on the SMAS and not the skin. Now I will turn to the experts, Dr. Grotting and Dr. Marcus, for operative techniques, vectors, and fixation. I mean, I think that the main ones, the main, the main lifts that, uh, that, that residents are going to uh, encounter, you know, your, your strict subcutaneous face lift where you're basically um, just elevating and pulling on skin. And um, while I think that that's, you know, there's still some folks that are doing that, um, it certainly has lost some popularity. It goes against the principle of not applying tension on the skin. That entire technique is reliant on that uh, aspect of it. Then you get into the various uh, elevations of the SMAS, and you have um, the you know traditional um, uh, SMAS elevation, which then can be in a bi biplanar, um, and where you have uh, two planes lifting. The the, the SMAS is, um, uh, is has tension applied to it, and then the skin is redraped over it, so there's no tension. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Grotting had mentioned earlier about the extended version of that, and then. Uh, that's one where you're carrying that out all the way to the nasolabial fold. So you just, it's, you know, the extended means how far you're going. Um, a more traditional would be stopping essentially at the um, zygomatic, um, uh, the um, zygomaticus major, where you see that origin. That's where some people might stop. Um, Sam Hammer described the uh, deep plane or um, uh, composite lift, and that's where the skin is left um, along with the SMAS, and that whole block is essentially mobilized. Um, Dr. Grani, can you think of some other of the potential ones that they may be asked about? Well, they um, they might be asked about the you know subperiosteal facelift, which I think um, was largely developed to elevate the upper third of the face. You know, it doesn't really uh, apply to the um, cheek and neck area so much, but more the mid-face and the brow. I think one might be asked about secondary facelifts, uh, and that is an area where generally you don't remove a lot of skin. You have to be careful not to damage uh, the skin, but um, I think the vectors that were mentioned earlier, uh, I agree with. Generally, the SMAS vector should be more vertical, in my opinion, um, and the uh, skin vector over the cheek should be a little bit more superolateral, almost thinking in terms of perpendicular to the nasolabial fold. Uh, but the skin of the neck, I think, should go more posteriorly behind the, uh, behind the ear. 
So there's a little difference in the vector of the skin of the cheek versus the skin of the neck, but that is one of the advantages of, uh, of, of working on, on the layers of the face uh, separately. I have gone from a uh, SMAS dissection to SMAS plication, and I think more and more surgeons are recognizing that plication can be equally effective to, uh, to SMAS dissection. I think that when people started doing plication, there was, um, there was some uh, reluctance to accept it based on how it was being done. It was, um, it was the vector and the extent of, of the plication. And so one is not the same, you know, one type of plication is not the same to all. So I think what folks are doing now um, and where Dr. Grotting talks about, you know, the mobile portion of the SMAS and how that's done. That's not what was originally described. So um, blanket statement saying that plication is less effective than elevation and mobilization probably isn't fair. It has more to do with, with what you're actually doing. I think that's an important point. I think our understanding of how the face ages uh, has advanced quite a bit, and it allows us to go back and examine some things that were done previously, but to combine them with, with adjunctive procedures, you know, such as fat grafting and uh, laser chemical peel and that sort of thing. Can you talk to us a little bit about areas where you fat graft um, and potentially malar enhancement? You know, where, where on the cheek do you focus that? Um, how much fat do you use? Sure. I am of the school of uh, Tim Martin, and I like to do the fat grafting at the, at the very first thing I do after I get the patient to sleep. We harvest fat. Generally, we harvest from either the abdomen or from the uh, hip rolls, or in very thin patients, we can usually get enough fat from the inner thigh. Uh, while that's being prepared, and I like a, a, a technique of just uh, minimal manipulation on telfa, washing it uh, very minimally, but I like good quality fat that injects well. You don't want to have, have any material, fibrous material in the fat that makes it so that you're injecting blobs. You really want to spray paint the fat as uh, uh, Tim and... Uh, Sid Coleman have talked about. I start off, once I've got the fat, um, I start off in the tear trough area, and I'll usually put one or two cc's across the tear trough, kind of butting up against the orbital malar ligament. I then move to the malar region, and I usually like three to five cc's in the malar area, and I'm injecting at all levels. Uh, it's probably safest to stay deep, but I think the malar area is more forgiving than a lot of areas, other areas of the face for fat grafting. I then move into the temporal region, and I like to stay deep in the temporal region, right on top of the deep temporal fascia. And then I move into the lateral brow, and I usually like uh, one to two cc's under the tail of the brow and in the subbrow fat. I then sometimes in hollow orbits or post uh, blepharoplasty ape frame deformities, I'll put fat actually within the orbit, not in the upper lid, but think in terms of extending the superior orbital rim inferiorly. And usually one or two cc's of fat in that uh, area is sufficient. Uh, I usually put one to two cc's of fat in the glabellar area 
and I may use so-called nanofat in the creases themselves. We haven't talked about nanofat, but uh, that was described by Verpali and Tenard, and really it's uh, destruction of the adipose cells themselves, but using the stromal vascular fraction to almost like, like autologous filler into the fine lines, uh, both in the glabellar area, I use it a lot around the mouth. Uh, and I'll then move down and use conventional sort of, quote, micro fat in the nasolabial folds, usually two cc's, usually two to three cc's in the marionette line, and then transitioning into the pre-jowl sulcus, and then sometimes as much as five cc's in the chin if it's, uh, if it's either totic or uh, loose. And then I will usually put one cc of fat in each earlobe. I may do an earlobe reduction. And then in terms of the lips, remember the ratio of 1.6 to 1. The lower lip should be larger than the upper lip. Um, I usually am placing fat right at the junction between the dry and the wet vermilion. I'm trying to turn the lips out. And uh, I may put either none or one cc on each side of the upper lip, and I'm usually putting two cc's uh, in the lower lip on each side. And keep in mind the anatomy of the lip, the, the so-called uh, eggs of the lower lip. There are two in, on either side of the uh, central uh, fissure. And then in the upper lip, usually three compartments. So you don't want the lips to look like sausages. You want them to look anatomically beautiful. And then finally, there's uh, more popularity with um, cheek and chin augmentation with prosthetics. Do you kind of incorporate those in your practice? And if you do, when do you use those? Yeah, I think most commonly when I'm doing a rhinoplasty in patients that really have have on uh, profile view uh, recessive chin, and uh, if it's if it's minimal, and especially if they have just a little flattening of the malar area as well as the chin, I think fat works extremely well, and uh, and it's forgiving, and you can always do a little bit more. So. I, pre I, I almost never use cheek implants, uh, but I'll, and I'm using fewer chin implants, but it's usually that patient that has a significant uh, recessive chin. Thank you. So moving on from um, facial analysis and operative techniques, we'll discuss some of the commonly tested concepts in management of the patient perioperative, op intraop, and postoperatively. Perioperatively, current recommendations include discontinuation of NSAIDs two weeks prior to surgery. Along these lines, fish oils, garlic, uh, ginger should not be taken prior to surgery as well. We should also proceed with great caution if the patient is on anticoagulation. Contraindications include smoking, obesity, uncontro uncontrolled diabetes, hypertension. As we discussed at the beginning of the cast, patients with certain skin disorders should not be operated on. Heather, what was that skin condition that was not a contraindication to cutis laxa? Additionally, procedures over six hours are not advised in an office setting, and over four hours may lead to higher incidence of urinary retention and postoperative nausea and vomiting. Intraoperatively, we need to remember to take as many precautions as possible to prevent postoperative bleeding and hematoma. 
Although we get impatient, it is important to remember that epinephrine takes 25 minutes to take full effect. Careful management of blood pressure is also important. Conscious sedation can lower blood pressure in up to 20% of patients, so have your anesthesia team use fluids to resuscitate initially. Heather, what is one of the advantages of conscious sedation? Conscious sedation has been shown to decrease the risk of DVT formation when compared to general anesthesia. Other intraoperative considerations include keeping the face elevated and not in a dependent position, as well as washing the hair at the end of the case. Postoperatively, the patient should maintain a head of bed elevation and strict blood pressure control. Incisions should be evaluated on postoperative day one to help detect possible hematoma. Drains are sometimes used to collect hematoma and prevent airway compromise, but should be removed early. Any dressings placed should not be too tight. Any small fluid collections may be aspirated with an 18 to 20 gauge needle. If a hematoma does form, it is treated by immediate return to the operating room. Small hematomas are are usually not detected until later and can also be treated with aspiration after the hematoma has liquefied, which usually occurs within three to four days. Interestingly, hematomas occur in 2 to 3% in female patients, but 8% of male patients. Heather, what is the effect of sealant glue use in a facelift? Sealant glue does not decrease the incidence of hematoma, but it does decrease drainage and ecchymosis. And to review, what is the most commonly recognized nerve injury during a facelift? That is the great, not greater, auricular nerve. <laughs> this is the most commonly recognized nerve injury in up to 7% of patients. If this is noticed during the operating room, as Dr. Grotting discussed, it should be immediately repaired. Sensory innervation to the skin flap is always damaged, but typically resolved within 12 months. A commonly tested concept is that motor nerve dysfunction present immediately post-op is typically due to local anesthetic. When nerve injury does occur, the buccal branch is most commonly affected. If there is nerve injury, EMG at three weeks to three months is typically performed. Surgical exploration can be performed at three months with neurolysis and repair. Now for a review question. A healthy 64-year-old woman undergoes rhididectomy with superficial musculoaponeurotic system plication and platysmoplasty. Preoperatively, 150 milliliters of tumescent solution is infiltrated into the face and neck. In the recovery room, the patient has buccal branch weakness of the right side. Overall, facial swelling is noted, but the right side is slightly more swollen than the left side. The swelling and bruising are symmetric. Which of the following is the most appropriate next step in the management of the right side of the face? Injection of a corticosteroid, percutaneous aspiration, re-exploration, release of potential nerve entrapment from the sutures, or observation only? The answer would be observation only um, because you are considering that this is likely due to the local anesthetic and the tumescent solution. One comment just about uh, about facial nerve injuries and exploration for them, and I know we're probably going to talk about this when we get into the facial nerve and reanimation casts later on, but um, one thing that's kind of important to remember is that unlike some other nerves, the, the facial nerve, after it's been divided, uh, will not be able to be stimulated distally in as, in, in as short a period of time as 24 hours. So there are patients where you could come back to it and have a non-stimulable nerve after a very short time. Um, I think that our, 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 our answer for the in-service is, uh, it's, I believe it's three days, they say, but it can be in as, le- in as few as 24 hours. Let's round out our cast on facelift with a discussion of additional complications and how to appropriately manage them. Skin slough and necrosis is seen with greater frequency in cases with subcutaneous dissection in patients with peripheral vascular disease, smokers, and undue tension on flaps. 
Very important point. I think uh, tension probably leads to more skin necrosis than almost anything else. Dressing sometimes can be a contributor, and I don't like tight dressings. I don't like dressings at all uh, after facelifts, particularly in patients who uh, have some problem with claustrophobia and they can't hear. Uh, so I think uh, uh, compression for an hour or two is fine. By that time, you should have reasonable hemostasis. But beyond that point, the dressings really aren't going to, um, I, don't, I don't think, uh, contribute to the final result. I'm trying to keep the patient's uh, neck at a right angle. So I tell them, to pretend like they're balancing a book on their head even when they're laying in bed. Uh, so I don't like a pillow, nothing that, that uh, forces the, uh, the head forward. So in terms of skin loss, uh, I do think that it's important to you know, monitor patients very carefully, particularly behind the ear. That's usually where it will start, sometimes at the sideburn, and uh, generally, um, there's not a lot that you can do. I don't like releasing the flap because it really becomes a problem. So I prefer to use uh, nitro paste, warming, um, topical, uh, conservative measures for that. And the key is prevention. Uh, don't operate on smokers, or if you do, make sure that they've quit smoking at least four weeks in advance and stay quit for four weeks after. Uh, keep your skin flaps uh, thick. Uh, shorten your undermining if possible. Don't treat the surface uh, with laser or anything like that. You don't want to injure the surface of the skin as well as uh, undermine. Um, all those treating the central non-undermined part of the face and the perioral area, either with chemical peel or laser, is, is uh, probably safe in most patients. One of the most commonly used dressings and the one that probably could be most problematic is Coban, uh, which is pretty popular, and it has some uh, good properties with it. But one thing that it uh, is difficult to do is to, is to tension, tension it properly, and it can be easily um, uh, placed too tightly. And so if um, my preference would, is, is to use um, uh, fluffy uh, type of a, a bulky dressing with Surgeonette, that type of a thing which is um, less compressive. Um, but if the patient is complaining about pain uh, in an unusual way, like in a disproportionate kind of way to what you're, you're accom accustomed to, um, one of the, the very first thing is going to be to release, remove the dressing. Thank you. Um, another complication that is more rare than hematoma um, that is present is infection, and that incidence is typically less than 1%. Um, Preauricular infections should raise the suspicion for pseudomonas, and as with all surgical site infections, MRSA can be transmitted from nasal carriers. Um, the incidence of infection can be decreased with topical use um, and chlorhexidine washes preoperatively. Um, next and finally, we will discuss the um, scarring and stigmata of facelift procedures. And so, Dr. Marcus and Dr. Grotting, do you mind discussing that a little bit for us? Yeah, I th really think tension is a key factor here, and most of the tension should really be on what I consider the key sutures, um, where the ones that I put in first right at the root of the helix, where the root of the helix meets the sideburn. sideburn. I think you can put uh, your, most of your tension at that point as well as uh, behind the ear. 
everything else in between should have absolutely no tension on it at all. And we talked about ways of preventing earlobe deformities. Uh, my preference at the present time is not to inset the earlobe to, uh, to have um, uh, sutures in front of and behind the earlobe, but to let the earlobe simply heal in on its own. It heals in r very fast and almost always will heal uh, with a good shape to it. So avoid tension in any location um, and uh, also particularly um, anywhere where you've got incisions that go back into the hair. I find that, uh, that well-placed skin staples is a little kinder to the hair follicles than a, a strangulating suture. I think you get less hair loss with that. And then can you talk to us a little bit about the pixie ear deformity, um, what that is and how to prevent that? Well, the pixie ear deformity can occur as a result of the healing forces which tend to be uh, oriented in a downward direction. And they almost always, it almost always occurs uh, from, from that uh, uh, scar contracture that occurs at that location. And in order to prevent that, um, one needs to make sure that there's no tension on the earlobe. Try not to pull the earlobe down. Uh, try to make sure that there's not a, uh, a V where the removal of skin from the posterior area meets the removal of skin from the anterior area. Try to have a little transverse cut there and try to make sure that there's absolutely no tension and then make sure there's even less than that. And I think uh, in that way, um, most pixie ear deformities can be prevented. Now, if they, if they occur, then I think the best thing to do is to try to redo it, but don't, you know, uh, don't inset the earlobe at all. Let it, let it heal on its own. Okay, and finally, we'll discuss secondary facelifts. Um, as these patients typically present a little later in life, they need to have a thorough medical evaluation um, as they're likely to have more comorbid conditions. Um, remember that the SMAS layer is typically thinner in these patients um, as they've already had a primary facelift. Scarring increases um, the risk for a tissue plane injury, but the skin flap is typically more robust due, a, due to a delay phenomenon. Um, any other comments on secondary facelifts? Um, only that it's, if possible, it's nice to know what was done first, uh, particularly if you did not do it yourself, to know what plane they were in. Some, some folks will choose to use the plane that uh, the first surgeon was not in. Yeah, I think to remember that uh, surgery is injury, and injury creates uh, variances in the anatomy. So things may not be in the places where you expect them. And so uh, if possible, do the least that is necessary to get the result that you want. Um, I prefer not to re-elevate the SMAS a second time, especially if I know that it was, if I did it the first time and I feel like it, it, was, uh, it was done reasonably well, then I would not try to re-elevate the SMAS. I think plication is probably a better operation for secondary uh, facelifting. And the area where you may not have enough skin is right at the tragus. So make sure that you're not injuring that region by putting clamps on the skin flap 
is as you elevate the skin superolaterally, you may find that it retracts a little bit right uh, at that area and uh, can create a, uh, an anterior deformation of the tragus. And uh, that's unattractive when you can look directly into the external auditory meatus. The way to correct that is an operation that Bruno Ristow uh, described years ago where you actually divide the cartilage of the tragus and you can put in a temporary mattress suture, suturing it back actually to the skin of the conchal bowl and you leave that for 10 to 14 days Then try not to have any uh, tension on the skin that covers it. You'd actually be surprised in many of the secondary cases how little skin uh, you're going to remove. So um, be conservative about that before you make the, that decision about removing skin. Like Dr. Grouding said, you've got two key stitches, one uh, at the helical root and one uh, posteriorly up, uh, up close to the hairline. Those are going to be suspending, sort of hiking up the skin. Um, you're not going to do anything down uh, at the earlobe at all, and all you're really thinking about is some uh, conservative excision that's going to be on that anterior portion and the posterior portion because the the workhouse, the workhorse there probably will be what you did with your, your plication on the deeper structures. Well, thank you so much uh, for coming, Dr. Grotting, and thank you, Dr. Marcus. Um, this is In Service Insights, and we look forward to having um, you guys tune in for our next cast.